Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. We just passed a big deadline in this year's legislative session in Salem. Basically, all the bills that they're going to be considering are finally in, and with over 2,700 of them on the docket, there's a lot to talk about. I'm John Natariani, in for Claudia Meza. Today, on CityCast Portland's weekly news roundtable, we're taking a look at three potential new laws that could have a big impact here in Oregon. We're talking about microchips, classroom sizes, and retail theft with Julia Shumway, senior reporter for the Oregon Capital Chronicle, and our very own newsletter editor, Rachel Monahan. It's Friday, March 10th. This is what Portland's talking about. Rachel, Julia, thank you so much for being here. Before we get started, there's a lot to talk about in terms of legislation right now, but I wanted to ask you both a question. If you could get the Oregon legislature to pass one law completely selfishly that is only for you to enjoy, what would it be? I'm going to ask you first, Rachel. What do you think? The first thing that occurs to me is I'm kind of um, an angry cyclist when I'm out there on the Portland streets because (laughs) of the quality of our bike infrastructure. So I want a whole bunch of protected bike lanes funded by the legislature right now, please. More bike lanes everywhere. Protected, protected. I do not have to worry about a car and my child. And within a four mile radius of your house, of Rachel Thank you. house. <laughs> what about you, Julia? This is purely selfish as a political reporter who has worked in another state where they actually print bills in different colors so you can see quickly what what the changes are, what what's being added or subtracted from from law. I, I want color coding and, and better font in these bills I have to read every every year. <laughs> you probably read a lot more bills than I do at this point, and it is difficult for me too. So I, I'll, I'll co-sign on yours, on your legislative priority. Perfect. Though I have to say that that feels pretty much in the public interest. Not particularly selfish. <laughs> I, I would agree. I, <laughs> I think there's a lot of, lot of staff and other reporters and other people who'd probably support it too. For me, I would like a mandate passed that Fred Meyer has to do a better job of stocking soda water because the brand of soda water that I like is always out of stock at Fred Meyer. I love that, John. I kind of want I kind of want to ask questions. (laughs) Is it a brand or is it for mixing drinks or? It is just the plain Kroger brand soda water. It's like in the blue, blue and white box. It's just the one I like. (laughs) They are always out of it. That's amazing that they don't stock their own brand reliably. Well, there's a lot going on right now in Salem. Um, Wanted to check out three bills in particular that could be coming law here in Oregon. Um, Julia, you've been taking a look at this bill that could have a big impact 
on the semiconductor industry in Oregon. Tell us about Senate Bill 4. Yeah, so unfortunately, the legislature didn't take any action last night the way we, we thought they might have might have done. You mean uh, um, Wednesday night? Wednesday yeah. night, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, we were optimistic that maybe I'd be coming here with news that a, a Senate or joint committee had passed this bill to provide up to $200 million in, in new funding for semi the semiconductor industry, manufacturers, people who want to build new, new plants here, and also give Governor Kotek what amounts to a magic wand to change the state's land use system to site um, new, new semiconductor facilities. Unfortunately, legislators are taking a few more days to think about this, but the deadlines for them are coming up pretty soon and they want to pass this kind of legislation out of the entire House and Senate by mid-March. Yeah, I mean, this is all tied to federal legislation, too, or like it is sort of piggybacking on some stuff that the Biden administration is doing. Yeah. So last year, and folks have probably heard about this, the federal government passed the Chips and Science Act. And this is a bill that will provide billions of dollars, about $53 billion directly to semiconductor manufacturing in Oregon and in states around the country. And so this has sparked this competition between a lot of states, including Oregon, to try to get their share of that money. Um, we start in what is should be a position of relative strength in this competition because Oregon has such a long history in the semiconductor industry. At this point, um, Oregon has about 40,000 people. That, that's 1% of our state's population working in this particular industry. About half of them are at Intel, our, our largest private employer. And it's about 15% of the nation's uh, semiconductor workforce all in, in Oregon, which is not that big of a state. To what extent are legislators chasing Intel? Like, To what extent are they trying to make up for the fact that Intel chose to expand elsewhere and not here recently? They've, they've still been rather coy about which particular companies they're chasing. And a lot of that's being done not by legislators, but by economic development directors at the state level or at the local level, especially in, in Washington County, which has been our, our state's hub of the semiconductor industry. They've some some companies, including HP, which has a location down in Corvallis, have specifically said they plan to expand here if they receive their share of state and federal funding. Intel hasn't come out and said that yet. We're not really sure what Intel's future plans are once they finish with their their current um, commitment to Ohio. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking about the land use part of this and the fact that it could just give the governor carte blanche to change land use in some areas in a way that feels pretty unprecedented. Like, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'd say that that's been one of the biggest holdups in um, getting this bill advanced so far is that people care really strongly about Oregon's land use system. And the idea that we could have land that, depending on who you talk to, is either some of the most fertile farmland in the state or is no good and can only be used for growing grass seed, the idea that that land could suddenly turn into a, a manufacturing facility has a lot of farmers really concerned. They also mm -hmm. see this kind of as a start of a slippery slope. If we give the governor the authority to do this for one specific industry, what's to stop the legislature or the governor from taking that authority for something else if years down the road. What about you, Rachel? What jumps out here? Um, well, you've kind of mentioned the competing interests here between economic development in the form of the semiconductor industry 
And I knew Intel was our largest employer in the state, our largest private employer, but I, I had no idea what percentage of the U.S. semiconductor industry was here. That was that was really interesting to hear. And keeping that going seems to be really important to the state's economy. Um, and on the other hand, since the 70s, Oregon has defined itself, you know, almost part of our identity that we have saved farmland and also that we have protected our natural areas from sprawl. So it's really an interesting fight to me on that level. Yeah, that that's absolutely correct. Um, one of the biggest pieces of land that that folks are looking at for another major facility is is right outside of Hillsboro, in this farmland that was part of something called the Grand Bargain uh, ten years ago. Hillsboro mm-hmm. got you know some some more land down in the south south part of town to build houses and had to give up a lot of land that it had plan for industrial uses in the north. Now, 10 years later, the city wants to undo that. And a lot of people who live in the area are are not on board with, with undoing that grand bargain. Yeah. Yeah. To what extent is that playing out like the Hillsborough's past mistakes? The thing that gets mentioned to me all the time is Top Gulf, that Hillsborough squandered even industrial land on businesses that don't really, you know, contribute in the way that people imagine. Wait, 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 Rachel, can you tell me the Top Golf story? Because I don't know that one. <laughs> you know, I, my understanding is that this business that, like, you know, it's a recreation facility is built in an industrial area, and so that's an example of how, you know, well-intentioned moves to create more industrial land might not work out the way people are planning. And on Top Golf, um, I was actually up on a, a tour with some uh, folks from the city of Hillsboro last week and learned from them. They're, they're still rather defensive of their decision to cite Top Golf um, in that industrial land, insist that they need to have some balance of not just manufacturing facilities, but some of these amenities. They, they mentioned childcare, but apparently golf is also a an attractive amenity for people who want to go play golf on their lunch breaks and say that this is something that that the people who are citing facilities out there really, really enjoy having. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that argument <laughs> for that particular one. Child care, child care, massive recreational facility, sort of different. <laughs> the big golf is going to be coming for you, Rachel. They are not going to like that take. Oh, no, I'm so afraid. <laughs> Is there is there anything that feels different with this governor having been so astute at the legislative process? Like, can you see a different political dynamic at all in the legislature right now? We haven't haven't seen too much different in the legislature. Um, I think there's still still in early days. We may see more of that as the session as they, they near an end, as they're working more on their budget, a lot more involvement from Governor Kotek. But I think at this point, she's also trying to figure out her role as a governor versus as the, as the chief legislator and and give legislators some space to, to do their own work. Yeah, I saw a quote from her. I can't remember where it was, but saying, oh, you know, she was not, I think it was not voicing an opinion on 2001, HB 2001, because she's focused on mm-hmm. other things. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I, I, like I had a skeptical response that she would not have a very 
uh, like deep opinion on a housing policy. And, and HB 2001 is... It's a housing bill. Uh, Julie could probably summarize it better, but I, I think the piece she was being asked about was about there's going to be a new way of calculating how cities uh, address the need for housing. But I totally thought the governor would have a view. Yeah, she did um, a little little after saying that she didn't have an opinion on it. She did add that she had been reading everything about it. So I think she's not ready to share her opinion, but I'm sure she has one. All right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll take a look at what else is going on in the legislature. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I want to swap from semiconductors to education. Uh, Rachel, something you've been keeping an eye on, this bill that is back, that we looked at a couple years ago, now it's on the table again, about requiring bargaining over classroom sizes. What's going on here? Yeah, the state, a state teachers union, the Oregon Education Association, is pushing for a bill that would require districts to bargain over class size. What's significant about that is not that your child's class size will immediately go down, but it adds pressure to reduce class size is how I would explain it. Teachers unions right now can ask for that, but this allows them to apply pressure to reducing class sizes. Do do we have a sense of why this is coming up now? I mean, there's a lot less kids in public school in Oregon than there was a couple years ago, right? My guess, and and I'll be interested to hear Julia's, is that this is something that the union has pushed for in the past. And so it's kind of the way that the legislature works is that a bill comes up, it doesn't pass one session, they go back at it in the future. So I'm I'm also curious about the timing. I think Rachel's probably right that this is just it's one of those issues that the teachers union is going to continue passing session after session or pushing session after session until they they get it to move. Um, I'm curious, given the the teacher shortage that we've been experiencing in Oregon and around the country, whether there's we actually have enough teachers that you could say limit limit classes to 24, 30 students and have enough physical teachers to teach all of those students. Do you know, mm-hmm. do you have a sense of how that's that's affecting this this bill and these negotiations? I have no idea that's an that's an interesting angle though for sure. I, I wonder if I, I also wonder if with declining enrollments there's an added interest for the union to want to have limited class sizes in some of their contracts so teachers don't lose their jobs. I was also kind of confused about, so this bill was brought up in 2021 and it didn't go anywhere. 
And part of the reason that they said it didn't go anywhere was because of this question of equity, um, which was confused, which I just couldn't quite wrap my head around. Rachel, did do you have a sense of how that played out and like what the equity conversation here is? Because it seems like smaller class sizes is good. <laughs> yeah, I think teachers, students, and parents all want to see lower class sizes. Like when private schools have huge classes, we'll know that like there's no upside to uh, larger class sizes. But as far as I understand, the data is really clear that lower class sizes for kids who might face additional risks is really important early in elementary school. Um, the data is a little more mixed beyond that. Mm. But as far as I understand it, Portland Public Schools has prioritized lower class sizes in higher need schools, Title I schools, higher poverty schools. Yeah. And so what a class size limit means in Portland Public Schools is that some of the higher income schools, the teachers are paid more money because they have more kids in their classes. So that's the effect of this. Yeah. So it's not a direct correlation. On the other hand, I want lower class sizes now for my kid. <laughs> you know, like anyway, <laughs> to to show my like conflict. This is Rachel's this. second pet issue yeah. of the day. <laughs> yes, I mean, oh well, public schools generally. Yes, I, I mean, I'm also just curious that this is being brought up without also raising the question of school funding and of like the resources that are being put into the school. And and I'm wondering um, where this conversation goes. You know, if because I think that some of the critics are worried that, like, sure, we can pass this, but if there isn't the resources to support it, then that's going to have to come out of some other part of education, right? Oh, I, I'd say this is this is coming up as we do have a governor's budget that's trying to increase um, funding for for students and for schools. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's it's going up several hundred million dollars in her budget that for the next proposed budget for the next two years compared to the last two schools and student schools and teachers say it's still not enough, but it may help with some of the potential extra costs that that could schools could face if they have to hire more teachers. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on it. Um, Going to pivot to our third story, taking a look at retail theft. Just something that I think is like actually really interesting and a lot more complicated than it might initially seem. Uh, there's all this talk about retail theft in Oregon, especially in Portland, whether that's sort of like petty walking in and grabbing something or these really huge organized theft rings that exist um, that experts say is costing larger retailers like millions of dollars each and every year. And there's a bunch of bills that are looking at kind of toughening the consequences on people that are going and stealing things from stores. Um, two of those bills that look like they're moving forward, uh, Senate Bill 318, would create about $5 million in grants for cities to sort of help fight the problem of retail theft. Uh, then there's another bill, Senate Bill 340, which would basically change the rules to increase penalties on retail theft. Yeah, it's a big issue. People are really worried about it. Is this actually a big problem? Who knows? What do you guys think? 
I was going to ask you that, John. Did you did you figure out like are we in a time when this is more of a problem than in the past? Is Portland on fire with retail theft? <laughs> this is the perennial question of like is Portland on fire for X? I mean, I don't know. So like I feel like I've seen a lot of headlines recently about this. I mean, whether that is just the media focusing on it, but I mean, Walmart announced they're closing their two store Portland stores. Um, and some people have said that's because of retail theft. The Nike store. I hear they closed in Texas too. And <laughs> this is one of my favorite uh, diversions of the week. Do you want to walk us through this oh, story, uh, Rachel? Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott took aim at Portland, you know, Portland's a good punching bag for Republicans to build their reputation still, it appears. I forget exactly what he said, but he went after Portland for those closures. And then Mayor Ted Wheeler uh, responded by mentioning closures in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Greg Abbott said something to the effect of like, this is what happens when you let mob rule take over. Oh, right. It was mob rule. Yeah. I kind of love how eager Ted Wheeler always seems to be for a Twitter fight. Anyways, you know, the Walmart thing, there's the Nike store closing, there's all this stuff that we're seeing in the headlines. But at the same time, there was like a report um, from the National Retail Security Survey that says shrinkage, which is the percentage of, you know, things that are being stolen is sort of the metric. It's about the same over the previous six years. And like, it's actually lower since the pandemic. So we don't actually know if this is a big problem or not. I don't know. What jumps out at you, Julia? So I, I've seen some of the numbers. I think Albertsons and Safeway here said they had lost almost 16 million to shrinkage, which is in the scheme of the in the, the scope of how much money they make is pretty small. Um, one thing I, I've been curious about is we see a lot more stores putting things behind locked glass is mm-hmm. how much they're losing in sales. I know as as a consumer, I don't want to go to Walmart and find someone to unlock the glass case for me. I'll just buy this on Amazon if, if it's something I don't need right away. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if they're seeing seeing lost business because of their responses to shoplifting. That's interesting for for retail stores because as I read one of the stories on this, a TV story talked about how um, they think that part of why they're seeing thefts is to sell things online. So mm-hmm. like a vicious cycle there. I, I'm also with with all this fear over retail theft, I'm wondering what this means in terms of uh, racial profiling and just the hysteria about people stealing things, like what that is doing. Because, you know, we did just see a story in the Willamette Week that talked about all of these lawsuits that are coming out of accusing major chains of really egregious racial profiling in the Portland area. And I'm wondering about that as well. Yeah, those are some really shocking details. If our listeners haven't read that story, I I really recommend it um, because the details that newspaper printed were not like they were not subtle. They were like threats to call the cops on somebody who had made a purchase. It's really troubling. Well, Julia, on any of these bills, for somebody who doesn't follow the legislative process very clearly, how do people keep track of 
where these things are. You know, we can talk about these bills all day, but there is still a long road ahead of us to like actually get them into laws that affect people. Like, where are we in the process and what are the benchmarks to look forward to? So we're, we're coming up on a couple really key deadlines. Um, so at this point, the, the first step in the legislative process, bills get introduced, they receive public hearings, and then they receive what is called a work session, which is where the committee that had this bill assigned votes on whether it should advance to the full House or the full Senate. The deadline to schedule those work sessions is March 17th, and then they have to have the actual vote by April 4th if a bill is going to advance this, this year or other Otherwise, it's most likely dead for the year, though there are cases where bills come back, kind of zombie bills get amended onto other things later in the year. But for the most part, if your bill has not received a vote by April 4th, it's too bad. Try again in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And in a given year, how many of those actually turn into laws? It's it's a pretty small percentage. Um, There's usually, I mean, thousands, I think, or close to like 2,700, as you said, bills, um, we'll probably see a few hundred of these become law. Yeah. So Rachel, I think... I think our bills are dead in the water. I don't think no! we're going to. I don't think I'm going to get no! my soda bill passed no! through the legislature this have year. We're going to have to wait for the next. <laughs> going to have to wait for uh, 2025. I'll take a gut and stuff for my bike lanes. <laughs> <laughs> and for your soda water. Um, but I, I have no hope for Oregon legislature transparency. Sorry, Julia. Oh. <laughs> Regrettably, you're probably right. <laughs> Maybe we can get you some highlighters, Julia. Maybe that's the, the, the workaround that we can make happen for you. <laughs> well, Rachel, Julia, thank you so much for being here and for walking through all this with me. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for CityCast Portland this week. I'm the lead producer, John Notariani, filling in for our esteemed host, Claudia Meza. Our audio producer is Julia Fiaioni. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan. Original music by Jenny Conley and Stephen Drisos, with additional music by Epidemic Sound. We'll be back on Monday morning with more from around the city. Have a great weekend.